The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 31. That's on page 780 in your Pewback Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of these as a gift from Park. Okay, Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Luann. Well, if you're paying attention uh, to the scripture passage, you know we got some heavy things to talk about this morning. You know, like this is several weeks in a row that we've had heavy things to talk about. And that's true. Uh, we've been kind of like plodding up this hill from Matthew 23 up to this passage. We're kind of at the culmination of one of the heaviest sections in all of G- Jesus' teaching ministry. Uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we will next week kind of turn the corner away from what is called this kind of like Olivet Discourse, and we'll kind of lean into and start looking at the kind of final moments of Jesus' life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection over, this, over the next few weeks. But this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the heaviest and hardest passages in the Bible. And so if you're new to Park Church, it's probably worth saying up front, first, welcome. Glad you're here today. Um, great, great day to visit us as we look at one of the hardest things in the scriptures. Um, it, it's important for you to know that, that as a church, we're really committed uh, to helping each other follow Jesus. And so our goal really isn't to kind of create a message that's 
palatable to Denver sensibilities. That's not our goal. So our goal on Sundays is not like, I hope we have a service that Denver people love. Uh, We actually believe Jesus has entered into this world to redeem people from the brokenness and the pain that marks all of our own lives and our city and our societies and our cultures and believe that he's, he's showing us a different way. He's showing us a different way to be human. He's showing us a different framework for the way we understand our own contribution to the brokenness in the world, how he as our creator responds and reacts to us in that space, what it looks like. And so our commitment as a church is just to look at God's word and say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And today we're going to be looking at one of those truths in God's word that is not very palatable to Denver sensibilities. And our, our basic conviction is that that's good for us, even when it's, and maybe especially when it's uncomfortable. The more uncomfortable the teachings of Jesus are for us, perhaps the more we need to hear them. And I really do believe that uh, as I've spent time over the past really several months and maybe in some sense for the past several years looking kind of looking forward is not the right phrase if what we mean by that is like excited. I have not been excited about this passage for three years, but I've been anticipating it. When we kind of map out the Gospel of Matthew, there are themes and passages that you're like, I can't wait to get to that one. That's going to be really meaningful, and that's going to be good, and we really need that. This one, is, there's been a little pin in it, in my brain and in my heart, waiting for Matthew 25, 31, for three years about this passage. And as I've spent some time thinking about it for the past few years, but especially over the past couple of months, I have been surprised to see in my own heart a greater awareness of the goodness of God in the midst of judgment, a greater awe at the glory and the mercy of Jesus towards me, a greater like, awareness of his patience and faithfulness towards the world, and a greater sense of hope that all the broken things we see in this world will one day finally come to an end. That all the pain, all the devastation, all the news cycles, the perpetual news cycle of brokenness and corruption and wars and genocides and poverty and racism and scandals within the church and brokenness within families and, and devastation that we see, there is a day when it's all coming to an end. And my prayer for us this morning is that as we think about a passage that might be for, for many in this room and for me in many ways uncomfortable to consider, that what would emerge from this time through the movement of the Holy Spirit would be a greater conviction that God is good, that he is deeply, truly, thoroughly good. And so I'm going to pray that he would do that in our hearts this morning as we spend time looking at the teachings of Jesus. So would you join me as we pray to our King? And Jesus, we come right now and just confess how much we need your Spirit. Uh, There are lies that exist in our culture that are perpetuated by the evil one that we have, many of us, in so many ways, kind of began to appropriate in our own lives. We've kind of embraced them in ways. We've drifted away from your goodness, the goodness of your kingdom and your reign. We've drifted away from your word, what you've revealed about your kingdom and about your mission in the world. We've in many ways chosen to kind of craft our own kind of like understanding of who you are that more fits into our Denver sensibilities and our kind of modern frameworks than what you've revealed of yourself. And and as much as these things are true, I pray that you would today, Jesus, in mercy and in grace, help us to see the goodness of your reign, the goodness of your kingdom, the goodness of your plan for the world, that we'd see your mercy and your justice and your holiness and your love and your faithfulness and your kindness. Pray that we would leave this place today more in awe, just deeper, 
deeper roots. So you think about your kingdom of love and justice. To think about your posture towards us and towards the world. But we need the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you move today? I feel an awareness of the different emotional spaces people come into, the different baggage and experiences in life and misunderstandings that we all bring to this and the assumptions we bring. Holy Spirit, would you move today to bring this to bear in each one of our lives in ways that make sense for where we're at? So I pray you pour out your spirit on this gathering this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I really do. I really do mean that. Uh, there's a huge piece of me that uh, wants to like take care of everybody. I, I truly wish I could sit down with people, or we could, as a team, sit down with everybody one on one and talk about your thoughts about these things, your assumptions that you bring to the table, your own experiences, your own personal fears or pain points, uh, the the kind of confusion or maybe the, the difficulty that, that you have as you think about it. And I recognize that we can't do that. And so I'm going to say things today with as much nuance as, as I can in a short time. We won't cover all the complexities that are in this passage, but I really believe the Holy Spirit can guide you and can bring these to bear in your life in ways that are clear and helpful for where you're at right now. But I would encourage you to lean in where there's confusion, where you feel doubt, where you feel frustration, where you feel, hey, but what about this? Lean into those. Lean into those to your gospel communities. Lean into those to our pastoral team, your friends, but most specifically, lean into God's word. Lean into God's word. As you wrestle with these things, we're going to be a community that's looking at what God has revealed about his wisdom and his ways, and we find that from God's word, and so I hope that'll be helpful for you. Now, we, we come to the table with like assumptions about these things. Today we're specifically talking about the final judgment. Dun, dun, dun. You know, like including things like the devil, dun, 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 and hell. Like the big ones. The big ones. And we've been kind of working our way towards this. But we come with assumptions about these things that have been shaped by centuries of culture and cultural expressions of the nature of hell, the nature of judgments, what that's like. We come to it with our own kind of baggage from our own story, our own journey, whether from within the church or outside the church, our perception of Christianity. Uh, We come to it with our own sort of like cultural kind of taste buds that have been conditioned by the sort of messaging and themes and kind of uh, cultural values that kind of surround us on a daily basis. And so what I want to do is show you some of these kind of old school um, presentations of these things in the form of art. And I'll show you this first one. This first one uh, comes from the 1300s. This is St. Augustine and the Devil. It's a painting on St. Augustine and the Devil. This is by Michael Pocker. And uh, if you'll notice, it's St. Augustine kind of interacting with the Devil. You'll notice the Devil has these goat horns. And you'll also, if you're very if you're looking closely, you'll notice a face on the devil's butt. And so, which is funny to me, because the artist is like, how could I do this in a way that's like insulting? He's like, this is like the, this is the quintessential butt face. Like, this is, this is like the guy just showing a, a picture of the devil and kind of making it ridiculous in a fascinating way. So this is like an old school one. If you're familiar with Dante's uh, The Divine Comedy, you'll be familiar with this image perhaps. Uh, the Divine Comedy uh, has a presentation of the Inferno. And so this is a kind of artistic representation of that from the 1800s uh, by an artist named Gustave Doré who painted this picture. Again, you'll see a kind of a devil in this underworld, like under the earth, a cavernous experience. It's hard to see the details, but there's people kind of like lounging in this kind of subterranean place with the devil, this winged creature in the background. The the modern conception that I grew up with of the devil was more like this. Uh, Again, goat horns, red wings, pitchfork, fire. 
Like this is, this is what I grew up with. I grew up with that. And then this one, which is a higher form of art, this next one, I grew up with this. There's uh, <laughs> the Simpsons burning with the, with the devil, with this kind of standard Simpsons grin kind of thing on his face. So fun fact, when I was six or seven, I couldn't find the picture. I might have shown it today. But I dressed up as the devil for Halloween. And um, which says something either about me or my parents, and I'm not, maybe both. I don't remember if it was my idea or my parents' idea. But either way, it warrants therapy, I think. Um, like whether it's like my, myself, like my idea of like who I was fundamentally or my parents' idea of who this kid is fundamentally. Um, either way, I need to do some work, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a Christian home. And uh, if you are a Christian parent discipling your kids, I don't recommend dressing them up as the devil uh, for Halloween. But these are, these are things we can look at, and all, all these images have shaped the way people think about it. And there are these caricatures that are so ridiculous at times that they can almost be funny. But when we slow down and start thinking about the real stuff, the funniness goes away super fast. Funniness goes away super fast. The, these concepts are um, mentally challenging as we think about our view of God. But they're also very emotionally challenging as we think about a, a lot of different factors. There are a number of factors that can make this right now these next moments, really emotionally um, delicate spaces for many of you. One could be the loss of loved ones, people you care about a lot, where you've wondered at times on the nature of eternal judgment. What's that like? You have some sense that that might be a feature of Christian teaching, or maybe you have a robust sense of it as a feature of Christian teaching. And so you ask questions about people that you love and care about that have passed away, and what is, what is their eternal destiny? So you have those kinds of thoughts, which are real. Uh, there are also like personal fears that people have wrestled with. Whether they come from the biblical ideas that we'll look at today or they come from some caricature of the biblical ideas, there are fears that many of us have wrestled with at some point in our journey about where will I go when I die? What is the future? I believe there might be more to life. And as a Christian, I like kind of believe that. But like, what's, what's really going to be the sort of a de- determining, uh, determining factor about that? And what, what's the nature of future judgment? And that can lead to a lot of personal fear. There can also be wounds in your own church story, people who used the fear of hell to do things that are actually really manipulative and unhealthy throughout the history of the church. People have used the fear of hell to coerce and manipulate people into making decisions and contributing to certain things that were deeply unjust and corrupt. It's real in the history of the church. It might be real in your own story. And then there's also this sense that in our current day and age, talking about these things has led a lot of people to push away from Christianity. Like these concepts of the idea in this passage that there is on a final day of judgment, a separation where some people are welcomed into eternal life and other people are condemned to eternal punishment. That for some people in our culture, maybe for some of you, and I understand this, that for our cultural sensibilities is a deep offense. It, it violates so much of what we want to believe to be true about the world and about people and about the God we, we want there to be. And so there are people who have this conception of a God that they want there to be, that, that, that they want, and as they look at Christianity, they say, if that's what God is like, these kinds of passages, no thanks. And have rejected Christianity or are deconstructing their faith because of these things. Many of you might be on that journey right now. And so I feel aware of that. I feel aware that these are delicate, delicate things. Beyond the sort of emotional delicacy, there are deeply and often misunderstood realities. Throughout Christian history, there's a fundamental conviction 
that we see as, again, characteristic, a core characteristic and a core feature of Orthodox Christianity, that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead, that the dead will be raised to judgment, the righteous to eternal life, the unrighteous to eternal death and punishment. That's a biblical feature of Orthodox Christianity. But even the nature of what that means and how that works itself out, there's disagreements on that. Increasingly, there are more and more people that have said, as much as that might be a feature of Orthodox Christianity, that can't truly be real. I can't really believe that. So I want to hang on to God, but I'm going to actually begin to dismiss parts of the Bible and parts of the teachings of Jesus to craft a conception of God that feels a little bit more palatable to our current day and age. So if you're wondering, are you one of the churches that believes the old stuff? I'd say, yes. However, Many of the old things have been so distorted by caricatures that it's important for us to look and see what does the Bible truly say. And there is no passage in the Bible, perhaps, that is more clear about the nature of the final judgment than this passage in Matthew 25. It is the clearest exposition, the clearest painted scene of the final judgment in the ministry and life of Jesus. There are certainly other places that talk about the judgment in the letters from the followers of Christ as they reflected on the teachings of Jesus and on the history of God's dealings with humanity and on the future of the world. There are presentations of final judgment in the book of Revelation through deep imagery and apocalyptic genre that have real meaning and force and weight to them that are difficult to sort through. This is one of the clearest expositions on the nature of final judgment from the teaching of Jesus in the Bible. And so we, this morning, want to look at it, believing fundamentally this is coming from the lips of the one who entered into this world to lay down his life in love, to redeem people from their sin, to take our punishment upon his shoulders, to bring forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing. He's the one saying it, and so we want to lean in and see what he has to say. And so what I want to do right now is just take a few moments to sort of unpack this from the passage. I'm going to unpack the first few verses and talk about the nature of this final judgment, how it works in the whole biblical theology, and I think hopefully try to correct, correct some misconceptions and help us see the goodness of God in the judgment of the evil. And so look with me. This We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. We've been working our way here over the past few weeks looking at the judgment that came upon Israel in the first century up to 70 AD from the hands of the Romans. And then Jesus for the past, you know, couple chapters, the past few sermons, we've been looking at him talking about the final judgment for when he comes again, the nature of what it means to be a people that are prepared for that, that are ready for that. And we'll pick up, this is Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. He says this, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. We're going to pause for a minute. Son of man is Jesus' favorite title to refer to himself. It has a whole Old Testament background to it. The Old Testament prophets, in particular Daniel, had this vision of the Son of Man and the rising and falling of these evil human kingdoms that were hurting and crushing people, that finally one would come, one like the Son of Man. He would come before the Father and he would be given authority to build a kingdom of righteousness and love and joy and peace to restore God's world. And that kingdom would last forever and ever and ever. And Jesus throughout his ministry is saying, I am that son of man. I've been given authority. And when he comes, he says, when the son of man, when I come in my glory and all the angels with me and I sit on the throne. Now that phrase sitting on the throne, there's passages in Isaiah that refer to it, passages in the other prophets 
that refer to this idea that, that the Lord God, Yahweh himself, will come on the final day of judgment and set the world to right. He will judge evil and good and bring restoration to the world. And throughout the Old Testament, that's seen as being a picture of the Lord God himself. Again, one of the clearest places in the Bible that we see Jesus identifying himself as one with God, that he is God in the flesh. He has all authority in the heavenly realm and on the earthly realm to be the judge of the world. And so he says, when the Son of Man comes and all of his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. We're going to stop here. Jesus is referring to his final day when he comes again. And it says he's going to separate people the way a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. He's going to quickly use a metaphor about the separation of sheep and goats and then get back to painting a picture of what the nature of that judgment is. So in the metaphor for Palestinian shepherds, both in ancient history and even still today, they would often kind of shepherd their sheep and their goats together and graze together throughout the day. So sheep and goats together, living their lives, grazing together throughout the day. When nighttime comes, there will be a separation of the sheep and goats to separate enclosures because sheep and goats need different kind of levels of care at night and warmth at night because of their own biology. And so they'd separate the sheep and the goats at night into separate enclosures. Jesus steps into that metaphor for a moment, mostly tapping into his role as the shepherd of the world, the one who's actually caring for the world, who's come to care for the world, to lead the world towards restoration. And his leading the world towards restoration has this image of separation of people, one to one side, one to another side. And he's going to talk about what happens, the nature of what determines which kind of like, which group you're separated into, and then of the future destination of those who are in those groups. And again, heavy stuff, stuff that you might have some sort of familiarity throughout throughout your kind of experience of Christianity, that this is like a thing that Christians teach. We've got to look hard at what, what's actually being said here. And so here's, here's how I describe essentially this final judgment scene, okay? This is final judgment and an understanding of basically what it is. The final judgment is the culmination of God's mission to heal the world by delivering it from evil. The final judgment is the culmination of God's mission to heal the world by delivering it from evil. And so we come to these passages here with a lot of presuppositions or assumptions about what this is. What, what we tend to think, and I'll show it all through a slide here, what we tend to think is we all live on earth and that there's a day coming when there's a final separation of the people of earth into either heaven or hell. And can we put that slide up on the screen here? We all here on earth, the sheep and the goats together, and then someday we go stand before the king, whether it's when we die or on the last day, and the king says, you guys get to go to heaven, and you guys go to hell. That's what many, maybe the majority of you in here are coming to this passage with that in your brains. And you're like, of course, that's Christianity, right? Like, you go before God when you die, some go to heaven, some go to hell. And I say, man, it's, it's close, but it's not what the Bible unpacks. It's not the way the Bible unpacks it. It's close, but it's, it's a misunderstanding largely. 
So, so the sense that many of us have is people are kind of living this life together. Some are good, some are bad, or whatever the criterion you think might be. And then we die, and then there's this final sorting out. You guys get to go to heaven for eternal life and joy and bliss and paradise. You guys go to hell for eternal torment and suffering and death and pain. And it's that kind of a separation. But what you notice throughout the biblical story is, it, is it's, it, it's framed differently. The nature of heaven, the nature of hell, and the relationship to the earth itself is framed differently. And so what I want to do to help make sense of this and help you see the goodness of God and the judgment of sin is to kind of back up and show the story. And so from the beginning in creation, in the biblical story, God as a creator king, we talk about this often, but it's just we got to keep it. we got to keep it going. we got to get our minds around it. God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And God speaks. And when the king creator speaks... It obeys. Creation obeys. And God creates in the middle of the earth a place where his reign is experienced in a particular way, where he's brought order and abundance and life and flourishing. And in the Bible, it's called the Garden of Eden. And Eden is this place where, like, the heavenly dwelling place of God and the earthly dwelling place of humanity is one. God is with humanity. Humanity is with God in relationship, in covenantal relationship where we experience his love, his grace, his nearness. And God has commissioned humans in that space to take this world that's full of beauty and goodness and to walk with him, to trust his word, to stay near to his love, to trust his wisdom, and to follow his way. And his commission to humanity is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Take that Garden of Eden, which is in the middle of the creation, and spread the boundaries of the Garden of Eden until the whole world is filled up with the reign of God manifested through his people. So start families. Have kids. Work meaningful jobs. Walk with me and trust my word. Love one another. Use your gifts, your vocation, your life. Do justice, love, mercy. Create culture. Show hospitality. Be human. And do it until the whole world is filled up with the knowledge of the glory of God. This is the fundamental mission of God from creation, that the whole world would be filled up with the knowledge of the glory of God, that the kingdom of God would be a global, worldwide kingdom full of people who walk with him, know his wisdom, know his love, and reflect that to one another in all the different ways he's created us to do that. That's the mission of God in the world, in the creation of the world. We know from the story that a spiritual rebel makes his way into the garden and deceives Adam and Eve, saying, if you really want joy, if you really want life, if you really want to be like God, if you want to experience all that you can in creation, don't trust him. You need to push away from him. You need to reject his reign over you and do it your own way. And that kind of takes the form in the Garden of Eden story as this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the idea is humans are told by God, I gave you this place to enjoy. Trust my word. Follow my way. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of the, that tree, you will surely die. It will lead you to death. It will lead to pain. It will lead to misery. It will lead to separation. It will lead to destruction. If you take upon yourself, if you push away from my kingdom and take that kind of mantle of authority on your own and define your own path, it will lead to death. And Satan says, you won't surely die. Surely it won't lead to death. So Adam and Eve, as they look at the fruit and it feels desirable, they take the fruit, they eat it, they reject the reign of God, and they, in the biblical story, experience death. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. 
They didn't die in their bodies, but they were in that moment separated from the presence of God. And so that brings us to the fall, this separation of the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of humanity. That humans are now exiled from the kingdom of God because of our rebellion against his reign. Because we rejected his authority and decided we're going to do it on our own, there's a separation. Biblically, that separation is the judgment of God. That separation is the wrath of God. That separation is the penalty for our sin. That separation is the just judgment of God on human sin. And that separation from God leads to an experience outside of all that is good, all that is righteous, all that is love, all that is life, all that is light, all that is hope, all that is peace, all that is goodness, all that is beautiful, all that is true. This pushing away from him into this world where we experience now Suffering, division, darkness, shame, pride, injustice, corruption, brokenness, disease, illness, sickness, abuse. The world of darkness, where we are experiencing the sort of unwinding of creation itself. We rejected the the one who creates. We push against his life and his reign, his upholding power, and we push ourselves into, as a just judgment of God on our sin, experience that's marked by death. What's crazy about the story is you don't see the fullness of the death work itself out immediately. So you even walk through the story of Genesis, and by the time you get to Genesis 6, it is awful. As humans have perpetuated and kind of cultivated, we've planted the seeds of evil, we've watered the seeds of evil, we've grown the seeds of evil, they start harvesting the seeds of evil. It is an awful scene. If you read the Bible, the Bible is full of devastating wickedness. People are like, how could you believe the Bible? It's full of devastating wickedness. It's like, that's literally what it's trying to say, is when we reject the reign of God, we create devastating evil. Where there are spiritual powers of darkness that are lying to our soul, deceiving us and keeping us away from the reign of God. There are lies that teach us to kind of like try to build the garden back, but on our own authority and are true enough to be kind of appealing, but lies enough to keep us away from true repentance towards God. And so all of the world is this experience of destruction and pain, but it's also marked by God's patience and mercy and faithfulness. The the Psalms and the prophets will talk about like the sun rising on the just and the unjust. The world is full of God's common grace. The world is full of evidences of God's goodness and mercy. The world is full of evidences of God's patience, but it's also full of brokenness. It's full of evil, and that evil runs within each and every one of us. And God, instead of just kicking the world to the curb, kind of doing another flood scenario and unwinding the whole thing altogether and starting fresh, his mission is to redeem the world and to accomplish his foundational purpose. And that's what we see coming in the person and ministry of Jesus. When Jesus comes to earth, what is the good news that he preaches? Good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has returned to earth, and I'm reestablishing the kingdom. And the reason why that's good news is because I'm welcoming people back into the kingdom, not through your effort, not paying you according to your deeds, but I'm welcoming you back into the kingdom merely by turning to me. The Bible word is repentance. And that word has like really like gone, you know, out of style. We need to bring it back. We need to bring it back. It is fundamental to the Christian vision of life that the fundamental aspect of what it means to experience forgiveness, healing, grace, reconciliation with God is to admit I've turned the wrong way, 
to in my mind, change my mindset and say, I rejected you as king. I don't want to do that anymore. To turn my life back towards you and to come to you believing you're the king. Believing good news, the kingdom's, kingdom of heaven's at hand, and I'm going to return to you. That is the thing that God is asking people to do. It's not pull yourself back up by your bootstraps. It's not figure it all out. You know, you need to prove it and you need to like atone for yourself. It is fundamentally return to the king. Just turn back. We created the wickedness and the evil in the world. The king came into the world enduring and experiencing the wickedness and the evil, suffering in it, sympathizing with us in it, and ultimately laying his life down on the cross. Laying his life down on the cross to take the penalty for our sin to bear in his life the punishment that we deserve from God on his own shoulders so that we could experience forgiveness, reconciliation, grace, and healing. And so when we turn to the king, you get to experience a forgiveness of your sins, an entry into the kingdom of heaven, entry into the kingdom of God where you get to experience his love, his righteousness, but we still wrestle with the darkness that we see around us in the world, and we still wrestle with the darkness that we have within us. And so the mission of God here and now is through the movement of God's people, through the preaching of the gospel, the transformation of lives, is to bring his healing and his restorative grace into the world. And so when people say, I can't believe in a God who allows all of this evil to happen. I look at sex trafficking. I look at child abuse. I look at racism. I look at genocides. I think about things like the Holocaust. I think about the history of indigenous peoples in America, the history of slavery in America. I think about the covetousness and the materialism right now that exists in the world that elevates some people up against others. And the mission of God is to redeem the world from that brokenness. It is his mission. He wants to reclaim the world. His mission is to bring heaven and earth together. And most fundamentally, in his mercy and his grace, He's doing that not by driving out all the sinners and getting all the sinners off the planet. That would be all of us. He's doing it by offering a way of forgiveness, healing, and transformation. And that's in and through the person and work of Jesus. And so we have this conception. We have this conception that the world has these really evil things out there. Like sex trafficking is out there. Genocide is out there. Like poverty is out there. And we want a world where all of that is put to right, where that doesn't exist. Every human being longs for that, for the most part. Every human being does. But what is at the root of sex trafficking? It's lust. What is at the root of racism? It's hate. What, what is at the root of poverty? It's covetousness. What is at the root of spiritual abuse in the church? It's pride and hypocrisy. But lust and hate, self-righteousness and hypocrisy is in me. We want God to deal with like the far out branches of the tree of evil. And God's saying, I care about the branches of the tree of evil. So seek justice, do mercy. Like go out there, help deal with those things. But God cares about the seeds of evil that we plant over and over and over and over again. So in God's mission to restore the world, he can't just like trim off the branches of evil. He has to deal with the root problem, which is our rebellion against him, which runs straight through every human being on the planet. And so if we want a world where sex trafficking doesn't happen, we need a world where people can be forgiven of their sin and their hearts can be healed. If we want a world 
where racism is no more. We need a world where people can be forgiven of their sin and their hearts can be healed. If you want a world where poverty and hunger is no more, we need a world where people can be forgiven of their covetousness and healed in their heart and contribute with compassion and generosity and love. And this is what the mission of Jesus is. And he's moving that forward. And you're like, well, why doesn't he speed it up? He's patient. He's patient because speeding it up, which one day he will do, it's what the final judgment is, is the final deliverance of the world from evil, and it brings us to the final restoration. You see this final image in Revelation 21 and 22 of, of heaven and earth being like reconciled like a marriage. It talks about heaven coming down, the heavenly dwelling place of God and the people of God with him coming down with earth. It's like this marriage, like a bride adorned for her bridegroom, like heaven and earth have been remarried, reconciled together with a dwelling place of God as with his people. And the world is now exactly the way God intended it to be, with King Jesus on the throne, with people living and reigning with him in love and joy and hope and faithfulness and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. He's building a world where the evidence of people's union with him through Christ is experienced and is reflected in harmony with creation and harmony with one another. It's where the whole thing's headed. But to get there, one of two things have to happen. People need to return to the king for forgiveness and healing and, and participate in the healing of the world or those who refuse to return to the king in perpetual, unrepentant rebellion must be cast out. Just like in the Garden of Eden, if God continues to allow people to plant the seeds of evil in his world, to buy into the lies of the enemy, to reject his authority and do it our own way, God is signing the world up for eternal suffering and wickedness, the kind of stuff we want out. In his commitment to heal the world, he must either redeem and transform those who return to him in faith or remove and separate from his kingdom those who refuse. And this is the biblical, biblical conception of hell. This is the biblical conception of eternal life. Look what happens in the passage. We'll kind of walk through it here quickly. It says this. He separated the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And I'm going to kind of come back to the, the criteria. And he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Remember, we talked about this. Like, this was the design from the creation of the world. This was the design. And he's saying, You've returned to me in faith. You've turned to my son. We'll talk about that in a moment. You've experienced the healing of your heart. You're participating in the healing of the world. This kingdom has been prepared. Come and enjoy it. The other passages talk about him saying, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into what he says later in the passage, eternal life with God. That's not kind of cloud heavenly out there. It's the reconciliation of heaven and earth, all things new. Welcome into the new creation kingdom. Welcome to the new creation kingdom. Look with me. Go down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Depart from me, you, you cursed. You who have continued to hang on to the sin and the curse that it brought into this world. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is what's a stunning, stunning line to me. He talks about the kingdom of heaven and the eternal life as something that's prepared before the foundation of the world for those, for God's people. He talks about 
this, this experience of eternal fire, later he'll talk about eternal punishment, as something that wasn't fundamentally prepared for for humans. It was prepared for the spiritual rebels that brought lies into the creation. It is not God's heart or desire that any human being would experience torment and misery in hell. It is not his desire. It says it explicitly in Peter, he does not desire any to perish, but that all through repentance that would come to the knowledge of him. His desire is for all to turn to him. But for those who persist in unrepentant rebellion in his commitment to heal the world, he will finally and fully separate from himself all of those who commit to continue in their rebellion against his reign. And the reason why he's doing that is in order to be both just and to be the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. So look at what it says here in the passage. It says this, And these, talking about these ones who have rejected his reign, will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the end scene is God with this worldwide new creation kingdom reigning where people who have learned his mercy, his grace, his love, and who have experienced through his love forgiveness, have experienced through his love patience, have experienced through his love generosity, have experienced through his love mercy, have experienced through his love a kindness, have experienced through his love the wisdom of his reign, have learned to trust in it through our own battle with our own hearts. We've learned to trust his way is better, his way is good, like we sang about. His, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. This is who I was designed to be. We've learned to trust him, and that will be evidenced by and manifested in a life of love, a life of love. So I think here's the question we have to ask when we think about this passage. Here's the question we have to ask. Doesn't Jesus know the gospel? That's not how it works. Like when, when, he, when he says these phrases about the criterion for judgment, it seems like he forgot about the gospel. Look at what he says in the passage. It's right here. He gives the criterion. He says to the righteous, to those who are experienced the blessing of the Father, he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of these, my brothers, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then the inverse happens for those who experience punishment. He will say, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they're going to answer and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. One of the misconceptions we have is that when we stand before God, we will say, he'll say, welcome into eternal life because you prayed a prayer when you were five years old. Welcome into eternal life because you went to a church that believed the right theology instead of the churches that believe the wrong theology. Welcome into eternal life because you went to church and you read your Bible and you did these things. Welcome into eternal life because 
In the passage, what Jesus says is the characteristic of those that are welcomed into eternal life is a life of love. In particular, towards the marginalized and in Matthew's narrative, focused on its love for people within the body of Christ, love for his followers. The phrase, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, is a phrase in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that's used specifically about his disciples. Does that mean it's not evidenced by our love for people outside of the the Christian family? No. The whole theme of Scripture, the whole theme of Scripture is that God has shown us a way to live. You see it through the law in the Old Covenant. You see it through the teachings of Jesus. You see it right here and right now in this passage. The whole theme of Scripture has shown us a way to live. But the other theme of Scripture is we've all fallen short. All of us. That's why literally the next verses in the Gospel of Matthew are going to start unpacking the cross. Did Jesus forget about the Gospel? No, he was literally two days away from laying down his life for the unrighteous. He was two days away from sacrificing his body on a tree to pay the penalty for our sins. He was two days away from hanging on the cross and experiencing the wrath of God, experiencing separation from his father that he did not deserve because we deserved it in his ability to take union and responsibility for our sin, to die on our behalf, to cry out on the tree, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that fundamentally because we have as a human race failed to be who he called us to be. In the words of the apostle Paul, reflecting on the prophets, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one does good. We've all turned aside. We've all done our own way. We all said to the king, no thanks, and we turned away from him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That though we have all turned away from him, though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are, in the words of Paul, justified, justified, declared righteous by grace as a gift to be received through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. So how does that work with what Jesus is saying here? And this is where many evangelicals and Protestants over the past couple hundred years have just like shortchanged the gospel. Just like cut it off. Like we we turn to him in faith. He forgives us. Done. Get to go to heaven when we die. That's not what the Bible says. We turn to him in faith. He forgives us, shows us mercy, declares us righteous as a kind of foretaste of the final judgment. And because of his love for us, because the presence of his spirit within us, he's healing our heart and equipping us to be the kind of people that participate in the healing of the world. So the way 1 John will say it in 1 John 4 If you say you love God and you don't love other people, you don't know him, you're lying. If you say you know God and don't love your brother or sister, the truth is not in you. Because those who know and love God manifest it in a life of love. So what is this saying? Is this saying like, oh shoot, I drove past the person on the exit ramp of I-25 And now I'm afraid that because I drove past him that one day, God might condemn me to hell forever because he was hungry and I didn't give him food. Is that what it's saying? Jesus isn't giving a list through which to kind of like prove your acceptability. He's reminding us this is the way that we're created to live. And our failure to do it, we need mercy and grace and healing. And it's through his love, it's through his sacrificial death, it's through the power of his spirit that he transforms us over time to be the kind of people that live a life of love. 
that we say as a church, we are a people that are learning, to, we're making disciples, and a disciple is somebody who's been reconciled to God by grace and is learning to be with him and to follow his way of life, a life that's marked by love for God and love for neighbor. And if you've turned to him in faith and experienced his love, even in your sin, even in your failure to care for the homeless, to care for the poor, to care for the vulnerable, to care for the marginalized, in all the ways you've done that, the invitation of Jesus stands. Come, come, come. Turn to me. Confess to me. And I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you. And when he does that, what he does little by little is transforms our life to be the kind of people that participate. So when we stand before him on the last day, all who know him, all who have experienced his love, he will say the way you loved, the way you participated in the healing of the world was beautiful. Welcome home to the eternal kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. But for all who refuse, even if they're like a moderately good citizen, who have maintained a heart of rejection against the authority of the king, which was the fundamental sin of the garden, God will say, this is not, this space is not for you. And there is a final separation, a final judgment, a place that God has prepared for the devil and his angels where all of the unrepentance will be cast in God's commitment to heal and restore his world and in his just and holy judgment against sin, a place that will be marked by destruction and unmitigated misery. And it is not his heart that people would end up in that destination. But in his commitment to the world, he will be faithful to execute judgment so he can put the world to right. And this is the longing of the Christian hope. And so for me, as I've thought about this passage, I want to share with you like three things that have been deeply convicting to me. One is there are, there are things in my life that I need to repent of. And I'm, I'm just reclaiming the word. You need to repent. I'll even get a little repent. You know, uh, we need to be a people who repent. Like where we see the seeds of evil in our heart, where we see covetousness, where I see in my heart a, self, a kind of self-absorption that in my house cares more about my life being comfortable than serving my kids and my spouse. Where I see in the workplace like a, a kind of arrogance that thinks my ideas are better and worthy more of consideration than my coworkers and the team I get to work with. And I put other people's opinions off the side and kind of elevate my opinions above others. Where, where I lack compassion for my neighbors who are hurting and prefer just to kind of like watch March Madness. Like where, where I push away from the presence of God and would prefer to distract myself with nonsense. Where I have lust, where I have hypocrisy, where I have covetousness and greed that just tries to chase more and more from this life. That, those are the seeds of hell. And they're planted within me planted by me, and they hurt people already. And in God's commitment to heal the world, he wants to do business in my heart today. He's been doing stuff this week. I think in his commitment to heal the world, he wants to lead you in kindness and grace and mercy to repentance. I want you to participate in the healing of the world, not the damaging and the destruction of the world. So this invitation to repentance, there are things that many of us need to repent of today. That's Christianity. This is Christianity. And he's gracious and merciful. He's faithful, for, faithful to forgive us. Second is formation. Not just forgiveness, repentance, but formation. There are things that God created me to do. 
like ways he created me and created you to love people, care for people, serve people, do good to people, seek the well-being of people. There are just acts that need to be done in this world. There are things that need to be challenged. There are people that need to be loved. There are vulnerable people that need to be cared for. There are people that need to be prayed for, people that need to experience compassion and kindness, truths that need to be spoken, forgiveness that needs to be offered and asked for. There are things that need to happen that God's created us to step into that. And this is what we're doing together as a community. We're learning to follow the way of Jesus. Formation. That part of the healing of the world isn't just like kicking back and waiting until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. It's participating in it through the transformation that he's working within us even now through the Holy Spirit. So formation. I feel like this need for repentance and for, for forgiveness, this need for formation to actually pursue the way of Jesus in my life, in my neighborhood, in my home, in my workplace, in our city. And the third is mission. The third is mission. There, there are incredible senses. Every time you see devastation in the world again, every time you see another news cycle peek its head and it breaks your heart, and it breaks your heart, you think, how long, O oh Lord? The reason why he is waiting is because of his patience, and he wants more people to know him. He wants more people to turn, and we were given the ministry of reconciliation. We were given the mission to be ambassadors for a true and better kingdom, to be ambassadors for life, to be ambassadors for love, to be ambassadors for the reign of Christ, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom of love and righteousness and joy. And we are given a message through which people can be welcomed into the kingdom through faith in Christ and can then experience that forgiveness, experience that transformation, and participate in the healing of the world. It is our mission. So if I don't want to see sex trafficking anymore or racism, or I want to stop hurting people with my own life and my own sin and my own arrogance and my own pride and my own covetousness. I want, to, I want to get on the business of being with God in this mission to redeem and heal the world. And this is who he's called us to be. It's what it means to be Christian. And we can't force people to believe that, but it is the fundamental message of Christianity. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he will make all things right. And we get a chance right now to participate in the mission of God as he seeks to reconcile people to himself, forgive us of our sin, and transform us to be the people of his kingdom. May he help us to do it with joy, with love, with humility and grace. Let's pray. Now, Jesus, we come right now and we confess we need you. I feel very like, aware of the sin in my heart, the kinds of sin that already lead to pain for others but also the kinds of sin that left unaddressed like bring more and more pain into my soul and the lives of others. And would you help me to be a man who is quick to repent? Not out of fear of punishment, but because of your offer of forgiveness. Not in like terror or shrinking back to you, but drawing near to you, Jesus, who laid down your life to bring mercy and grace and atonement and cleansing. And would you help us as a community where there are lies that have creeped into people's lives that have been kind of like eating away at their faith in you, eating away at, your, at their faith in your word. Would you help us to turn from those? Where there are spiritual powers at play that are bringing lies and captivity to different addictive habits and patterns and unbelief. God, would you deliver us? Would you set us free? Would you transfer more and more people out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son? And then would you change us to be a people who seek justice, 
who do acts of loving kindness and mercy and who walk with humility before you, knowing that we deserve judgment, but in your grace and in your mercy, you've offered us forgiveness and mercy. I pray we'd stick to the old ways, that the cultural messages that get us to kind of push away from your good old story, the story of the gospel, would you snap us out of those lies today? Like your kingdom is good, your reign is good, your wisdom is good, your mercy is beautiful. Help us to believe. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.